Hi guys, welcome to the F1 101 podcast, a Formula One podcast for old and new fans. And this week we reached out to you guys on Instagram to kind of field some questions about what are the basics that every Formula One fan should know. Uh, we want to clear up a couple things. We want to give you some background and some context and some maybe some tricky aspects of the sport. So we're going to get into that. That's going to be a series. So this is the first episode of that series. Uh, but it's been such a crazy couple of days in F1 that I feel like we got to address some of the stuff that's been going down. Right, Brandon? Absolutely. So, Olivia, what do we have? We just heard like literally an hour ago that Michael Massey has been fired. This He's, is like... He is gone. <laughs> they came for him. Heads were rolled. His he was chopped. It's been I gone. I feel like he's been in the guillotine for like two months here, just waiting for that blade to come down. I mean, who did not see this coming? To be honest, I think there is a little bit of a relief, even that now we can move on from that. At least that's the kind of the feeling I'm getting. What do you think? We saw it coming. At least it's over. But I still feel like this whole debate about the way the season ended, which I'm kind of tired of by now, is still like. It's being resolved in this weird kind of in-between way. It's like everyone agrees that Max is a worthy champion. I think most people, unless except for diehard Lewis fans, are like, you know, excited to have a new champion. That race was thrilling. It was controversial, yes. If you were Lewis, you would absolutely feel hard done by, rightly. Yeah. But I think that the neutral fan was probably happy that the race ended, you know, it ended racing rather than under a safety car. Uh, they're not going to give the championship back to Lewis. Lewis and Toto were fined for not going to the uh, awards gala. Mm -hmm. But now it's like they're throwing Lewis and anyone, you know, who's aggrieved about the ending like a bone by firing Massey. But at the same time, the FIA hasn't said, like, the season ended improperly. It's like, oh, what, are, what are we doing here? Like, it is, such a is this a fuck mess. up or not? Everyone's trying to, I think, cover their ass. Um, all right, you did mention two, two things. So, yes, Massey is fired. He will be relocated somewhere in F1, so they haven't completely just, like, left him out in the cold. He's still um, going to get a paycheck. He's going to get a paycheck. Okay. Uh, he's definitely, I think they needed a public shaming. There was a lot of decisions over the course of last season. It wasn't just the last lap that right. I think were maybe at the end of the day not the correct or choice decisions to make. So this was coming off the heels of a couple of hiccups. So I'm not surprised. Is um, there still a report forthcoming from the FIA where they yes. finally give like their final determinations on the Abu Dhabi race? Yes, I think they're going to release the first five pages and then maybe... You know, release something later. Uh, it's, it's like never... the Mueller report or something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Why is it taking this I long know, to figure cares? it out? Who um, cares? Who cares? Anyway, but Massey being out, let's move on from this. Uh, Verstappen's going to keep the title. They gave him the the award. They gave him the, the trophy. I think after that's all been said and done, they're not going to retake that back. They couldn't possibly. No. So, and they don't want to. Maybe we can all have a little bit of closure. I will say one piece, you know, positive piece of all of this is that there are a couple new regulations, things that are put in place now after the mm -hmm. uh, controversial Abu Dhabi decision. Clarifying procedures, basically. Exactly. So 
two, the two main parts of that was one, they're gonna have a virtual race control room. So there's gonna have a live race control room where it's not, there's gonna be a couple of um, tiers of uh, checks and balances. Uh-huh. So it isn't just gonna be one person's decision, there's gonna be a couple of people who are gonna be aiding in a decision. If something in a race, um, something novel that comes up in a race that we're gonna have a little bit more of a structure in place a committee of people to group decide on something. And was part of that wanting to insulate the race director a little bit from the team principals? Because I heard some talk like, you know, Horner and Toto or, or whoever, the fact that they can just get on the phone and instantly start barking to the race director while this is going on, like it's, I don't know. I mean, it leaves you open to personal bias and the kind of, you know, real-time lobbying. I mean, as a neutral, again, I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of entertaining, but it's arguably it it's arguably not how you want to run an impartial sporting event. So the second thing is that they're not going to have radio messages from team principals to uh, FIA broadcasted, especially. Oh. So there's not going to be. All right, now I'm against these regulations. <laughs> Now we're not going to be able to hear the inside. It's going to be a little bit more behind closed doors. I think this will help, um, I don't know, keep some things internal. There isn't going to be as much pressure from fans, and there's not going to be a whole uh, emotional element. We're trying to we're trying to streamline this as much as possible, right? Okay, I hope it actually does bring clarity and order, and it doesn't just, you know, put the decision-making behind closed doors uh, right. from the fans, but... We'll see. Uh, we'll see. So what what else is going on in Ferrari's F1 world car. this week? Ferrari dropped. That was just, I guess it was just this morning, yeah, actually. Yeah, it was just this morning. It looks great. If you're on Brooklyn time this morning, it looks really cool. Um, red car like we expected. They're... The Ferraris always look good, though. Yeah. I mean, what do you got to do? Just paint the car Ferrari red. It looks good. It's always going to look good. You can't really, you pick a thing that works and you keep doing it. Like, let's it's just, not, let's it's just hope it's work. fast. An interesting aspect to it is that they have these like side divots on the bottom, uh-huh. and that was a new, um, a new design, a new engineering design uh-huh. that I think that uh, they're coming in really, really hot. A lot of people, like Red Bull, for instance, were playing it really close to the chest and were not revealing exactly the hand that they were going to play. Certainly not. But Ferrari not. is really confidently stepping up they're, to the They're actually here. showing some of their design yeah. and their aerodynamic. They have some cooling slats. They have some, I think, this the shape along the sides mm-hmm. that I think are just going to create wind. Um, uh, interesting, some like airflow we'll around be talk- the car. We'll be going deep on airflow later in this episode. Brandon's going to tell us how air oh, yeah, works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I sense a mansplanation coming. <laughs> oh, if you don't know, get ready. Uh, kind of the final thing is Otmar Snaffauer is confirmed team principal. There was some, you know, whispers, some, you know. This is at Alpine, right? That's right. There's what was, the term is like cooler talk, water cooler talk. Mm-hmm. People are just all like a little gossiping. I feel like the, just like Massey's firing, this is a hiring that's been like six months in the works. I know. Why is anyone just coming out and just saying what's what? Just I show your cards, people. We all we need the need to be strung along a little bit. Keeps us interested. All right. Tech technically I think Williams and Alphatari launch too. We're gonna save most of our new car thoughts for the definitive hot or not roundup uh once we see them all. But that yeah. that Alphatari is a nice it's a nice looking car. I'll just uh 
And I'll let that out there. Last uh, bit of news is Drive to Survive season four. We've all been confirmed, waiting for it. Confirmed right? for March 11th. So we're about three weeks away from the debut of that. The start Am- of that. Amazing, amazing. I know. I hope, I'm already mm-hmm. excited for season five when I see Papa Stroll and Atmar like having a glare down in the <laughs> paddock. Like, I hope that there's a slow mo of that in season five. Just putting it out there for Netflix. Give us what we want. Right. A lot of storylines to follow uh, and see how, how this season does it. But we'll, we'll get into that on another episode. So. For the basics. Let's get down basics. to the basics. A couple of things. Um, I just wanted to take the first turn and talk a little about sprint races. Uh, well, let's start with the structure of the F1 weekend. This is, you know, this will be familiar to many listeners, but the way that F1, the way the F1 weekend works over the course of the three days is truly unique in sports, I mm. think, um, and the kind of pacing and the buildup. And then, so I think what we want to do today is talk a little bit about the flavor and feel and setup of the F1 weekend and then the particular modification that is sprint races and all the mixed feelings that arouses. I know I have feelings about <laughs> And then we're we'll going to do a similar thing with airflow later. Talk about some basics about aerodynamics, slipstream, dirty air, and then talk about, you know, the controversy uh, about uh, DRS in particular. Right. So that we're going to sort of follow that structure. So you've been warned this is what's coming. So it's kind of a given, especially if you're a veteran fan, um, but for new fans... A lot of I'm always surprised the question people ask me when they find out that I'm a Formula One fan. Besides shock, once they've once they've recovered a little bit, they ask me, okay, so even what is that? How does that work? Right. And I have to sort of break down Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, so that's we're going to begin there right now. So the structure of an F1 weekend is you have a practice, you have a qualifying, and then you have a race. So each weekend is a new track so um, teams are practice and they see where they can find speed where how the corners work how different cars work throughout entire season you're going to get different upgrades on a car as well so you always are redesigning and reanalyzing your cars and you're having to adjust to those as well so practices are good for Finding yourself in a new car with a new engine um, and also find yourself in a new track. So right. I think that drivers are always going to maximize that opportunity. And yeah. people who know a little bit about F1, maybe seen some race highlights or watched a little bit of a race or some clips or something, what they might not realize is just how much of the race weekend is taken up by practice in mm. terms of just sheer time. So on that Friday, we've got two practice sessions, uh, about an hour long each. And then on uh, Saturday, you've got third practice, another hour, and then the, you know break for an hour or two. And then it's qualifying and then race on Sunday. So that's three practice sessions, an hour plus each, which is just, it's a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of content. It's very slow. Uh, I love it, at least at first. The first practice is almost like a tailgate. It's so low-key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a feel for the track. You see people driving around, making modifications. You get a feel 
for how to drive, you know, or you get a feel for what you're looking for as you see the drivers kind of figure it out. You learn a little bit, some news leaks out about, you know, car updates, possible modifications, any sort of other storylines. So it's it's real chill in that way. You you say it's chill. I almost see it as like a huge liability because the worst thing that can happen in a practice is that you total your car yes. and then you can you set yourself up for what is not maybe not an ultimate qualifying right so that there are some stakes which is that if you push too hard you can crash and if you do damage it takes a long time to repair you can you can harm your chances in qualifying right. and then the race so i love fp1 i'll typically watch most of practice one practice two i'll watch maybe a little bit of it, watch the highlights by the time we're getting to the third practice i just it's like oh, did anyone crash or not and let's get on to qualifying right so qualifying, that brings us on to Saturday. Some qualifying is just straight out fastest. Who is going to go a lap around the track and set the fastest time? And there's a really purity to this that totally. I enjoy, that I love to see just the car going fast. But there is strategy involved, like in everything. Absolutely. You want to go without getting too much traffic because if you are going on an out lap, and there's people in front of you, you're going to be slowed down by who's in, in front of you. And Olivia, do you want to briefly kind of lay down the structure of qualifying with uh, Q1, Q2, and then Q3? Well, just as you said, it kind of breaks down into three parts. Everyone goes for the first one, for, for qualifying one. The lowest five. five do not advance. And then to the last... Um, Q3, you have the top 10 cars. Right. And however you end up, like however your fastest time, second fastest, third fastest, fourth fastest, is going to set your position for the race start on Sunday. Right. So, so fastest is called pole position, and that puts you first. Second, third, fourth, all the way to 20th. Um, and that's where it starts. So when you see the cars lined up and you see the lights about to, to go off, you know exactly how each car got there. Totally. And even though qualifying is could be seen as just a prelude to the race on Sunday, by the time you're getting into Q3 and those closing minutes of Q3 where the best drivers are going for pole, like minute by minute, that can be some of the most intense racing uh, of the whole weekend. Right? Yeah. I love it. It's really pure time trial, you know, you against the clock. You want to go hard and push, but again, as with practice, like you can crash, like Max did in uh, Saudi Arabia, almost got on pole but went a little too hard and ends up in the wall. So you want to go all out, but like all out, you know, while not going over the edge. So that that balancing act, um, you know, driving right on the edge is 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 what the best drivers are are trying to do. I'd be curious to see how important qualifying is for this 2022 season because if there's a little bit more regulations to keep it a little bit more even but last year and all the years previous you want that position you want to hold that position so if you are a one or two if you're locking out the first row you are in such a good position like we had this discussion once red bull has usually favored drivers who are 
good overtakers and Mercedes usually prioritize drivers that are good at qualifying. Good qualifiers, yeah. And I was sort of, we were kind of weighing out like, which would be the best? What would you choose? Like, would you rather? Right. And that distinction is more obvious between Botas and Perez than it is between Max and Lewis, who are very good at both. Whereas in a race, Checo, wheel to wheel, just more savvy, more courage, more guts. Uh, there are those Checo highlights, like Checo defending and stuff it, last season. I, it's hard to imagine Botas doing that, but Botas is definitely a more reliable qualifier who typically, uh, yeah, typically earned a better grid position for his team. And now with George Russell, assuming that he's comfortable in the car and everything's good to go, he's going to be may potentially outqualify Lewis. I mean, that sort of. The thing people are going to be looking for. It wouldn't surprise me if every once in a while he did. Yeah, I think it would surprise Hamilton. Yeah. Um, But this is kind of all to say that qualifying has a huge importance. Right. I mean, obviously, Sunday, it's the race day. It is the most important outcome. But you are setting yourself up with a huge, most huge advantage. All right. To be qualifying the highest you can. Totally. So let's talk... The sprint format, which is sort of an alternate format that I think they used, they used three or six times last season. I don't, I don't recall. I don't remember. I like four. Maybe? It might have been something like that. It's going to be three for this upcoming season. So basically, with the sprint races, the FAA designates a handful of races to use this sprint qualifying format. And basically, what they do is they cut out one of the practice sessions. So they'll do a practice session on Friday, then the normal qualifying, uh, and the normal qualifying, in, in, in other words, the, the time trial, you know, solo form, then sets the grid for the sprint qualifying on uh, Saturday. Correct. And that's like approximately a third or a fourth of a race length, about? It is, uh, so the sprint distance is 100 kilometers. Okay. Um, it It'd be different laps depending on, on which track, track because right. different tracks are longer or shorter. But it is about 25 to 30 minutes a race. Yes. That means no one's pitting. No pitting. Um, there's not a lot of race strategy. It is full out. You try to get to cross the line first. Right. And then uh, where you finish in the sprint sets the grid for the race on Sunday. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk. Th- what is the best thing we can say? about sprint races the best thing well i was i, I, I mean was make, wondering the, make myself, the case make the case of what they they have to offer because this is a hugely controversial among f1 fans it is and it's something they've there's just starting so everyone's allowed to have an opinion about this i mean they're trying to suss out whether this is something they want to continue so um any kind of outspokenness is like it's something that's bound to happen I was wondering, what's, what is the purpose of this? Like, why would someone make the case for a sprint race? And it's really just to bring some more drum and more action to right. the spectators and the fans and people who are watching. Well, for one, it's intense. Yeah. You want to watch it. It is thrilling to watch. It's a compressed, it's real racing. And anyone would rather... I mean, okay, so what are we, what are we missing when we do the sprint race? We drop one of the practices. No one really wants to watch every minute of all three practices. So if it's between practice three and a sprint, well, just, of course you'd rather watch a sprint because it matters. It's real 
racing. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a little bit weird in that it takes the shine off of arguably the real race on Sunday. It's like almost playing a game and a half. It's like having mm-hmm. a Super Bowl on Sunday, but then on Saturday you play like one quarter and whoever wins that quarter, you know, like gets the ball first on Sunday or something. It's like, is a Super Bowl one game or is it a game and a half? Is this, you know, one race or is it a race and a half? It's yeah. it a little bit th- threatens to dilute or confuse the main product. You make a you make a point. Um, I don't think anything's going to really take away from the Sunday race, but it does sort of you know really we really have to ask of what long term place the sprint race has. Um, what so this year they've changed a couple of different regulations. They've changed some things up a little bit, um, and one of them is the point system. Right. So last year when they did the first sprint race, it was the first three finishers. In the sprint race, who would score points? And it would be three, two, and one. Right. First, second, first, third. second, third, yeah. And this year they're doing the top eight drivers, so eight all the way down to one. Yeah, one point for that eight means place, right. you can score up to thirty-two points a weekend if you if you win the sprint race and the regular mm-hmm. race. So it's twenty-five for the regular race, eight for the sprint. That means that there's more points up for grabs for teams, which we know. The for constructors championships, that's where aside from the drivers champions, the constructors are the teams win a prize if they get the most points per team, and that helps with how much money they have and future funding and how many sponsorships they can get and just be able to build and create a better car for the next year. So having more points on the table really makes it there's more of a grab. It's like you just there's open to the pinata and like who can kind of come and grab all the loot. Right. Um, so I, we would hope that teams like some more midfield teams might be able to like snatch a couple of points here and there that in the end of the season might be the clincher. Right. And I'm cool with them making it an eight point thing, giving uh, points all the way down to the eighth place finisher because it gets more cars into the mix. More drivers, you know, have are competing for real stakes in that sprint. Right. But on the other hand, it does like make a sprint weekend in a way more important, especially if you're in a position to finish toward the top of the sprint and then toward the top of the race. It's like, oh, is all of a sudden the Brazil weekend like more important than the spa weekend? Like, like why should that be? That, I don't really have a good answer for that, <laughs> right. but you're completely right. I The other thing I was thinking about, which is we have a 22, season, 22 race season. 20, 23, 23, which is the most races ever. Yeah, it was 22 thinking, last season. It seems like insane it's to a lot add of three yeah. other races to what is already a hugely long race season right one thing that newer f1 fans should be clear about is that no one wants the sprint race format to just supplant the normal format as the regular weekend thing um some people are okay with it as an kind of an occasional novelty i put myself in that camp mm-hmm. if we're talking like three to five sprint weekends I'm okay with the novelty, with the change-up, but no one wants this to be the way they do it every weekend because it de-emphasizes oh, yeah. qualifying, which is special, especially on tracks where passing is not that easy. So something like Monaco, qualifying is almost even with the real race as as the main event. Yeah. So the this year, Imola, Austria, and Brazil yeah. are the 
hosting the three sprint races. Brazil, a little bit more Mercedes-friendly. Austria and the Red Bull ring obviously favors Red Bull a little bit more. Typically, their cars tend to be designed to favor these kinds of tracks. Yeah, Max won both races at the Red Bull ring last year. And then famously... like it was easy. Like it was nothing. Famously in Brazil, between the sprint and the main race, because of penalties, uh, engine penalties, and then maybe driving penalties, Lewis uh, ended up gaining 25 places between the sprint and then the race to win in Brazil, which is totally one of the greatest races I've ever seen. It's absolutely the best case scenario for how a sprint weekend can play out. Yeah. Do your little favor and just watch Yeah, watch that race. Brazil, 2021. Just make a bowl of popcorn. You see Hamilton start at the back of the grid twice and just pick his (laughs) way through the field again and again and again and then finally overtake Max. Uh, Legendary performance all right so the sprint races that's kind of the breakdown that this is what we're going to get this year i haven't really landed on one way or other where i'm for or against i'm going to give it this this season before i can really come out and say okay if i'm for or against Uh, my opinion is is in the middle and i feel like people are so either for or against whereas my thought is as i said if it's three or even maybe a couple more fine don't do more than that so i'm sort of I'm sort of in the middle. A few I'm cool with. Okay, but anyway, now you get a feel for the the controversy around sprint races. So we got to move forward then. And the last thing we want to hit today is we want to talk about F1 cars and how they interact with the air and how that influences and informs and shapes what you actually see in a race. So you're going to have to give us a little bit of like how air moves around in the car and kind of a little bit of like slang and terminology exactly Exactly. right and then ultimately we're going to get to how this influences both passing and and the inability to pass love it uh, you know on on the two sides of the coin there okay so real quick let's just remember some real basics of what we know about how air interacts with objects moving at speed. I always wanted to know how You always works. wanted to know. I, you I, all did. Demis- I'm going to be demystified by it. All right, let's take it back to childhood. You're driving, <laughs> your parents are driving you around, you're in the passenger seat or the back seat, mm-hmm. you put your hand out the window, even at a relatively low speed, you don't need to be going more than 30 or 40 miles an hour, you put that hand out and you, you're, you're feeling the air, right? You set your hand flat, you feel like your hand's cutting through the air, you put your palm out to the wind. You feel your arm being pushed Dogs back. Dogs love this, by Dogs the way. Dogs love it. You sort of tilt your hand at an angle, and maybe you feel the air wanting to kind of pull that hand up in a lift kind of thing. They're just like that, right? Uh, different shapes moving through the air in different ways. And then let's think of what we see in other sports, the way objects are moving through the air in, in races. So even take a bike race or a downhill race. Maybe you've ridden downhill on your bike. You're coasting down the hill and you realize it feels different. You sit up high in the seat, you feel all that air hitting your body. Or if you crouch down, you're moving faster, you're feeling less wind resistance. Watch something like the Tour de France, right? They're going downhill or uphill. You notice all those bikes clustered so closely together. And eventually maybe someone makes a breakaway, but for the most part, they like to stick in a pack. Even the same thing on a track, like a running race, like an 800 meter, 1600 meter, 
the runners bunch up and then maybe at a calculated point someone who feels like they have some gas in the tank tries to break away and go for the win or something. Uh, the main concept here is called drafting. Moving through the air, encountering that resistance, it slows you down. It takes work. To be immediately behind someone who's doing that breaking through the air for you means that you have literally less work to do, less energy output to go at the exact same speed. Yeah. To give you like a personal example, I was a sprinter and I would be nervous before a race and I would have my my fists clenched and my coach was always like, you have to have your hands flat because you want to cut through the air. Right. You don't want right. to have even just like having your fists together. That's, that creates wind resistance that could be the difference between first or second right. or first and last. Right. So where how this informs F1 is you see a lot of the passing will happen on the straights. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And a common way you'll see passing is the following car gets in what's called the slipstream you might say the aerodynamic wake. They, they'll slipstream is really the F one term, but it's the same concept. They sort of pop in in that little pocket of air behind the leading car, spend even just a couple seconds in that pocket to to gain the horsepower advantage. Then they kind of pop around. It's like they take advantage of that a little bit of extra added horsepower that comes from shooting out of that slipstream. All right, so that's the good kind of air. That's when the car in front of you is is doing some of that, uh, taking some of your wind resistance from you, mm-hmm. basically. That's called the slipstream, and that's why you see a lot of passing on the straights, often aided by DRS, which we'll we'll get to in a minute. But another thing to know about these F1 cars and air is it's not just that they're low to the ground, they're single-seater so that they're very aerodynamically efficient and that they cut through the air, but all those, the wing, the front wing, the back wing, the barge boards, there's even elements underneath the car that are meant to interact with the air. They're super sophisticated and largely in creating downforce. So just like the wings of an airplane, uh, you know, the uh, air they have that airfoil shape where the air takes longer to travel over one side and the other and it creates lift, the plane lifts at speed. On F1 cars, it's the exact opposite. It creates downforce. It's like a wing pushing you into the ground. And what that means is it's safety, it's handling, it's why if you get in your Toyota Camry or whatever and you get that thing up to 85 (laughs) miles an hour or whatever and take one of these corners, what's gonna happen, right? Your car's gonna flip. You will notice watching F1 that that almost never happens. And, then, and your mom's going to flip. Right, she, she's going to flip. You were not supposed to do that. You were that not, car. right. You were not allowed to do that. Uh, so the F1 cars stay on the ground. They create a tremendous amount of downforce. And even though you can lose traction and skid and slip and have a spin out and hit a wall, you're not flipping over end over end in the way that a normal car would if they lost control at those speeds. Okay, so this advanced downforce means these cars cut through the air well, uh, they can handle, they can handle these, they can take crazy corners at speed because of all this downforce, but where does it become a problem? Well, it becomes a problem that the aerodynamics are so advanced that these cars disturb the air so much that if you're the following car, the air is so agitated and displaced that all your advanced aerodynamic setup cannot function in the way it's supposed to. 
Like imagine you have a really fast motorboat and you're ready to drive this over a pristine still lake, mm. right? You're ready to go fast. Okay, maybe there's a, there's a car in front of you or a boat in front of you rather that's creating a small wake. But as long as you're going straight, like you can still handle as expected driving right behind it. But now imagine that car in front of you is turning. Imagine they're carving back and forth on the surface of the lake and they're creating little waves and wakes going, you know, out this direction and that. Now all of a sudden you're having to ride over these bumps. Your speed is going to be hugely diminished by that. Now a water, you know, the kind of wake that a boat creates on the lake is not identical to how a car creates when it turns, but it is similar in the sense that that there's this disturbance. Right. And 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 it happens particularly through the corners. So on the straight the car in front of you interacting with the air can help you and in the corners especially medium and high speed corners that creates what's called dirty air which basically means the air is agitated and effed up so that your aerodynamic components cannot work as designed uh, and you can't get close enough to the car in front of you to pass so real short let's let's cut to the chase here Slipstream on the straights is good. Dirty air through the corners is bad. Makes it hard to keep up, hard to pass. This leads to the intervention called DRS. You've seen it. It's called Drag Reduction System. That's what the acronym stands for. It means that that little piece on the car's tail wing flips up at a certain time on the straights if you're close enough to the car in front of you. Gives you some added horsepower. Makes overtaking easier on the straights. Here's why it's controversial, right? Is that it almost feels like an artificial way to pass. It's like the cars can't pass naturally because really what you want is wheel-to-wheel racing, chasing, uh, tangling with someone through a series of corners, see who comes out on top, uh, whereas DRS feels a little bit, just a little bit fake. Okay, like there's certain races last season, Zandvoort, Qatar, the Hungaro Ring, where there was very little passing through the corners, which is not to say those those tracks are bad um, and they each have interesting things about them. But it creates this kind of, it's not really ideal racing where the cars are just driving through the majority of track and then really all the passing is happening on typically the one start-finish straight. So DRS was created because these cars got so aerodynamically advanced that they really couldn't race each other organically very much. And it uh, kind of makes up for that. So the good is that it allows cars to pass, but the bad is that a lot of these cars aren't racing in spots where we'd really like to see cars going. It's also controversial because not every car has DRS. Well, all the cars have DRS. It's just a matter of they need to be close enough to someone to, to activate it. Within a second. Right, within a, within yeah. a second. Okay, which is a last point here. The new regulations coming in with these cars that are just being launched now, the heart of this whole redesign is to make these cars disturb the air less, create less aerodynamic wake, such that the cars can follow each other closely, more closely, pass more organically. So if that works, if if what the engineering intentions are are actually manifest in reality we might eventually be on the path to where we don't need drs but right now given where things are you need drs to have a race 
where people are passing each other enough to keep it interesting. I'm curious your thoughts. Obviously, having no DRS, organic passing, we rely on driver talent, driver intuition, ability, all of those good things. But with, you know, with having these added systems like DRS, we can have a mechanical advantage. Do you think that we've just advanced to the point where having a mechanical advantage is just where we are? Or do you feel like we should take a step backward to favor human um, human talent? I agree with the current hopes to make wheel-to-wheel racing more possible, to make following closely more possible. And I hope that that gets us to a point where these cars can race enough, go wheel-to-wheel enough that DRS is eventually not needed, and then we can get rid of it. But I, I don't think we're there yet. But why have developed something so that works so well only to not use it? Why do we value Well, DRS works well to fix a problem that we don't want to have. Mm, So if the problem goes away, we don't need the artificial solution to the problem. But anyway, so now, you know, hopefully our goal here has been, and now the casual fan has a sense of like where DRS fits in, what it does that's positive, but also why, you know, fans don't really love it ultimately it's ultimately not exactly the you know pure heart of auto racing and this is really it was relatively new like what was the last two years or yeah so? two two or three so it's only been two years that we've lived with and anything they, they, they like threw DRS. it in because because the, the cars got so fast and so aerodynamically advanced that uh you know the, the f1 was a victim of its own engineering success the cars got so fast they couldn't race right anymore all right, guys, I think, I think that should about do it for today. So next, uh, next episode, I think we have a couple of options. We're going to bring back our driver profiles. We're going to continue with our uh, you know, FAQs, frequent last questions for new fans. So this is part one in a series. We'll have more of this. I can't wait to start reviewing previewing the season and getting into some races we're the cat we're getting ever so closer to lights out in bahrain so right and uh testing in barcelona is less than a week away here that's right so we won't be able to watch any on-track action but we're gonna get the highlights we're gonna have a lot to discuss um so more to come and we're definitely looking forward to it this is this we're still pre-season here you know we're we're trying to establish something good but we're we're growing off of not a lot of land. We need we need some some races to really kind of sink our teeth. So we're in we're in the off season doldrums, and yet somehow it still feels like there's a lot going on. And there's always every day. It's just like what is going on. It's always something breaking. Well, right. thank you guys for listening, and uh, we appreciate uh, you being here with us. If there are more questions that you would like uh, clarification or context for, if there's more episode ideas that you would like, if you have a burning um, desire for a certain driver profile, let us know. Follow us on F1 101 Podcast on uh, Instagram, and just join the conversation. I'd like to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, and tell your friends about this podcast. All right, thanks, guys. Right, Bye-bye. Ya.